0: everyone would like to open their Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission, we know it well. It's the heart and life of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. The uh, Albert Simpson began the movement of the Christian Christian and Missionary Alliance based on the Great Commission that we find here at the end of Matthew. In fact, the Christian Missionary Alliance is ten times larger overseas than we are here in. The United States. We've become a great missionary movement around the world. And our goal as the Alliance is to see the gospel access for and from all peoples. Not only for, that's the going, but from is discipling them, preparing them so they can then take the gospel and spread it out. All the dark gray areas that you see on the map are where the Christian Missionary Alliance is presently represented or located. We want to work towards completing the Great Commission. That is the focus of our movement. So we are really focusing on the least reached people groups of the world. As you can see right there in the central part of the map, uh, 80% of the Alliance International workers live in this particular area, in the circled area or uh, the rectangle there, which is home to more than 80% of the world's remaining unreached peoples. Is it easy? It's probably the hardest work. But we are bound and determined to complete the Great Commission, or be a part of completing the Great Commission. And all of that started with this amazing final Scripture portion in this great Gospel of Matthew, which reaffirms to us the primary responsibility of the Christian in the world. Now I know we enjoy Christian fellowship, and that's important. It can be very rich and rewarding, but that's not our primary responsibility. I know that we are called to praise and worship the Lord. That's what we do every Sunday morning. It's a wonderful thing, and that can be rich and rewarding, but that is not our primary responsibility either. And I know that we are called to learn the Word of God and to, te- and to teach and uh, so that we can better understand the Scripture and then apply it to our lives, but that as good as it is, and as important as it is, is not our primary responsibility. Our primary responsibility is summed up in one verb, in this passage in verse 19, "Make disciples. Make disciples." And then it tells us what the extent of that is of all nations. That is a primary reason the church is here. That is our God-given priority as a church. Jesus came, the Bible says, to seek and to save the lost. And we have that same task, to seek and bring salvation to the lost. And this is what it means to make disciples. In fact, the the Greek word matetuo simply means... To make a disciple of someone, to teach, instruct, and to follow that person's precepts and instructions. In this case, that someone is Jesus. This is a command that requires obedience, but we are not only commanded to do it, but God has equipped us to do it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the very end of the age. You see, when we accept and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we also receive the Holy Spirit who then becomes our resource, our power for witnessing. Teaching and ministry and fellowship and worship and all of that is important. That's all part of the body of Christ. But the primary goal is not to do something with the saints, but to do something for the lost. That is everyone's task, everyone's responsibility. And I know this is not something new that I'm telling you, not some brand new thing that I found in the Greek. And I know that we understand that and we know that, but it's easy to lose sight of. It's easy to get so involved in spiritual ministry, doing good things within the church and in Christian fellowship and Christian relationships and so busy in church activities and services that we lose touch with the needs of the people that are outside the lost. So the question that I'd like us to look at this morning as we finish up this great gospel of Matthew is this. What is necessary What is necessary to make me effective in reaching the world? What are the qualifications? What are the ingredients? What are the motivating forces in my life that will cause me to fulfill the Lord's command? I think we see five of these qualifications in this text, and that's what I want to look at this morning. Five necessary ingredients or qualifications for effective disciple-making. Number one availability that's huge verse 16 then the 11 disciples went to galilee to the mountain where jesus had told them to go now we don't have to go deep into the nuances of the greek language to to understand this very simple jesus said meet me at the mountain in galilee and they showed up they made themselves available that's where any kind of effective ministry starts. It starts with showing up. It starts with being initially available. Somebody said the greatest ability is availability. You see, no matter how gifted we may be in our abilities, and in, in all of our giftings, if we are not available, it becomes a moot point And we become useless. Everything starts with showing up. Now it's interesting to note that it doesn't say that it was exclusively the disciples that he met with. He told the disciples to meet him there. But from what I've been studying here, I'm convinced that this meeting is what the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 and 7, when he says, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Brothers and sisters obviously referring to followers of Christ or believers. Galilee would, have, Galilee would have been where most of the believers or most of the followers would have been located because that's where Jesus spent most of his time in his ministry. The mass, a vast majority of this crowd has not yet seen Jesus after his resurrection. If you look through the other Gospels, it, it shows snippets, and it's usually of the disciples or the women. But word would have spread like wildfire. You can probably imagine um, that, that uh, going out to everybody. And the crowd were believers with all their weaknesses, with all their questions, with all their confusion, perhaps, and, and their fear, and with all their bewilderment about how it was that Jesus could have died in the first place on the cross. And now they're ready to have their first sight of a risen Christ. Again, coming back to our first point here, nothing happens except to those who are available to have it happen. When Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 8 said, here, I, here am I, send me. He was reiterating this first point of availability, which is the starting point of any effective service for God. They were there. They wanted to see the living Christ. There was enough desire in their hearts to follow Him, to bring them there. And because they were there, they were then privileged to, be, to see His presence to hear his promise, and to receive that great commission. Can you imagine if, if all those people had just stayed home, gone off to the fields? Ah, I don't believe that for a minute. Though they may have heard that Jesus was risen, they would have always had questions, perhaps confusion, perhaps even fear, because they had not seen it. But gathering together as a body of believers, they were excited, they were encouraged just to be with the others with the same expectations. And then together they were emboldened to work together to accomplish that great commission that Jesus gave them. You know, the time we spend with Jesus and with his body affects everything else in our life. We need to ask ourselves about our availability. Every believer does. Because I am convinced that those people who are most effective in making disciples are those who choose to be in the Word, who choose to be in prayer, and choose to be in the assembly of believers, and out of that kind of fellowship, being in the presence of the living Christ, come to the incentive to carry out His cause. And they're encouraged. We encourage one another in this. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23, says very strongly, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, working together, accomplishing Christ's great commission together not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a second qualification for effective disciple-making, and that comes from the text in verses 17 and 18. And that's the word worship. It says in verse 17, When they saw him, they worshipped him. Proskuneo to worship it means to prostrate themselves in adoring worship that's the right response always to Jesus and i'm sure that if if uh, if we had been there that day seeing the resurrected christ it would have been overwhelming to us and that w- that we would have all fallen on our faces and worshiped him They worshipped Him. They were in awe of Him. They they already loved Him. They already trusted Him. They they had learned to follow Him. They already affirmed their praise of Him. And now it was complete as they saw Him in His resurrected, glorified form. You know, it's so easy for us to grow accustomed to His face, if you will. It's easy to start taking Jesus for granted. Start taking His Word for granted. We get So caught up in our me world, so easy to do that we lose sight of the awesomeness of the resurrected Christ, the awe-inspiringness of the glorified Christ. We lose sight of the fact that we need to be prostrated before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in worship is really consistent with Matthew's emphasis. If we go back to the very beginning, as as Ben alluded to earlier in the service, the first couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel, you'll remember that that as he introduces the coming of Christ at his birth, he's very careful to point out that the wise men came and did what? They worshipped him. And here as he concludes his gospel, it's important again for him to point out that he was worshipped. When Jesus was first resurrected, what did the ladies do when they greeted him? You remember that. They fell at his feet. They prostrated themselves, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. The one who came to be worshipped is being worshipped. It's interesting. At the end of verse 17, uh, Matthew says, "Ah, But some doubted. Why did he put that in there? Some doubted. I mean, wouldn't that kind of plant a seed in somebody's mind, of somebody who is perhaps skeptical of Scripture, that if they doubted, why in the world should I believe it? Doesn't that hurt Matthew's cause? Well, the answer is really very simple. He said it because it was true. <laughs> there were some that doubted. The Bible always has transparent honesty. I don't know if you've ever noticed that as you read through Scripture. They don't, scripture doesn't hide anything. The biblical writers are never caught up in some human effort to convince people of the resurrection by contrived or selective reporting. They're, they're, not, they weren't, they're, in, they're not into selective evidence gathering or, or the hiding of inconvenient truth. They just rec- recorded the facts. And the truth is, some were doubtful. And that's one reason I believe that there were, that's probably the group of the 500, because the disciples had already seen Jesus. There's no reason for them to doubt it. The women had already seen Jesus. There's no reason for them to doubt it. But there were some there that doubted. It's not really surprising if you think about it, they weren't used to seeing resurrected beings. They had their doubts because that's part of our fallenness, that's part of our weakness, that's part of our human sinful nature. We're going to be, and we're going to be talking about that uh, next Sunday, the whole concept of doubt. And on top of that, they, they hadn't yet seen the resurrected Christ as the other disciples had. They had only heard that he had risen. It wasn't that different from the disciple Thomas, remember? He, he doubted until Jesus spoke to him directly. Now, I don't believe it was a wicked doubt. I don't believe it was a sinful doubt I don't um, that that chooses to reject evidence. I don't believe it was a foolish doubt which chooses not to consider evidence. I believe it was just kind of a normal doubt that just needed more evidence. Remember in Mark nine when the father brought his son to Jesus for, heal- uh, for healing from a demonic spirit, and the father said to Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. you remember Jesus' reply? If you can. (laughs) I wonder if he had a smile on his face at that point. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my doubt. I think that's where some of those people were when they saw Jesus. Was Jesus angry because of their doubt? No, I don't think so at all. In fact, Jesus did something very interesting in verse 18. It says, when some doubted, and it says, then Jesus came to them and spoke to them. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think he did that? I think it was to give them more evidence. It's me. Allowing them to see him up close and personal. What did he say to Thomas in the upper room? Do you want to believe? Do you, know who, do you want to know who I really am? Do what? Look at my scars. Put your fingers in my hands. Put your fingers in my side. There's plenty of evidence. And Jesus came to them, came to that crowd, and he approached them, the Greek text says. They just weren't sure yet that it was really the Lord because they hadn't seen him before. And a group of 500, he was, he was, they probably saw him far off. I'm not sure if that's really Jesus or not. There's an old hymn that says, I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith. I want to stop doubting. I want to rise in the arms of faith and be closer, drawn to thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord. We need that nearness to the Lord to get rid of our doubt. And that's what he was doing for those people, to erase doubt. Jesus came nearer and nearer to do that. Folks, there's a lesson there for us. The closer we are to Jesus, the more we'll trust Him. Trust Him for our lives, trust Him for our health, trust Him for our future. One commentator in describing the scene wrote this And so they saw His beauty, that unfading beauty, that, that appearance, so mild and yet so almighty, so entirely human and yet divine, so mild and yet so powerful the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the conqueror of death and hell, and yet the Lamb of God with the marks of the slaughter upon Him. They saw Him, and I'm sure after He came near, they found themselves ashamed and joined those who worshipped. To worship is to acknowledge deity. To worship is to acknowledge majesty, sovereignty, to acknowledge glory. That is essential in the life of one who wants to be a disciple maker. It's only when we are consumed with love and adoring praise to Christ that we are then controlled by that. We talked about that this morning earlier. We don't evangelize in a vacuum. It comes out of a worshiping heart. If I really love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, mind and strength, then his cause becomes my passion. What I love consumes me. What do we love the most? We talked about that a little bit this morning as well. What do we love the most? It's our, ac- it's our actions, not our words, that are the evidence. We can say a lot of stuff. Do we love the world and its excitement? Do we love self? Do we love money and are consumed by it? Do we love food, entertainment? It could be anything. Does our love for Christ consume us? John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. When we worship Jesus that way, making disciples then becomes a priority in our life. Where's our heart? If our heart is set on Christ, then Christ is all and in all. His kingdom is all. His cause is all. His purpose is all we live for. And in order to make disciples, then, we have to start with availability and we have to proceed to worship. Then there's a third qualification that flows out of the text, and that is submission. Verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That statement is so all-encompassing and boggles the mind. I don't think we can fully comprehend what that huge statement what a huge statement that is. When Matthew began his gospel he introduced Jesus as king. He gave his royal lineage and had a group of oriental kingmakers acknowledge him as king. He began with the fact that Jesus was king and uh, and king means what? sovereign ruler. And now as he ends his gospel, it's the same thing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is another way to say he is king, king over all kings, sovereign over all sovereigns. He's in charge, absolutely in charge. If that's true, we then are called to what? Submit to the rule of the Lord and to participate in his kingdom. Look at the word authority for just a minute. Exousia. Exousia, the Bible dictionary says, means power, authority, right, liberty, jurisdiction, strength. Now when you add the adjective all to that, all authority, that gives him the power of choice, the liberty of doing as he pleases. It gives him the complete freedom of action. Then, when you put the whole statement together, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is not only has a complete freedom of action, but he also has, according to the Greek dictionary, and I quote, the power of rule or government. It's the power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. End quote. Now, this particular authority that Jesus is talking about is not, not authority like a great conqueror who, who gets authority because he has conquered a, a people group or a particular land. And on that basis of what he's done, he now has authority. But this authority of Jesus Christ is based innately on who he is, not on what he has done. He is God, and it is the authority that innately belongs to deity, but which has been reaffirmed by what he has accomplished on the cross through the death and resurrection. So as one who is the conquering hero over sin and death and Satan, and one who is innately God, he has complete freedom of action. What Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 2 is what he was referring to here. Remember when Jesus came to earth in the form of a baby? Paul begins there in Ephesians 2, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And what happened? The resurrection happened. And Paul goes on to say, Therefore, because of the resurrection and because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge. Acknowledge what? Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is king, that he is ruler with all authority to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A huge statement is intended to establish who is in charge. He is king. He is authority. And we submit to that authority. We participate in the unfolding of his kingly purpose. He is Lord, he is is sovereign authority over earth, for heaven, and that means over each one of us as well. And we need to get to that point in our lives that we live with the attitude that says, the king to whom I submit is Christ, my Lord, my king, and no other but him evangelizing, making disciples, is the overflow. It's the consequences of these three great spiritual attitudes, availability, worship, and submission. One author said, Show me a willing, worshiping, humble heart. I'll show you an instrument God will use. So easy to get caught up in the inane trivia of the world, spending our time, our life, our talent, our energy, our money, our resources on stuff, right? Stuff that will burn, and wondering why God doesn't use me to make disciples. Perhaps we have to go back and look at our attitudes. Sometimes we have to do a heart check from time to time. Do I have a willing heart? Am I available? Am I there listening to the voice of God? Do I have a worshiping heart? And do I have a humble heart submitting to the privilege of sharing in his kingdom? There's a fourth attitude, fourth quality, that is also essential. And it's a word that our culture today, and at times even within the church, has a difficult time with. And that is the word obedience there's a huge misconception within the church today and i'm talking church church in general that obedience is is no longer necessary and the argument is that we are no longer in the old testament and trying to obey the laws of the old testament god's you know christ has completed all that right and we but we live in the new testament times. that's all about grace so we don't need to worry about the law anymore In a perfect world without the sinful nature, I would totally agree. Because we would automatically be doing God's will. Because that is the overflow of, or the consequences of, or the results of a transformed life. But even our perfect example, Jesus Himself, practiced obedience. We know He didn't want to go to the cross in his human nature but he became obedient to death even death on the cross when he said not my will but yours be done in fact in john 5:19 jesus said the son can do nothing by himself he can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does the son also does that's the epitome of obedience and if jesus was obedient to his father how much more do we his created beings need to work towards obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 19, Jesus uses the transitional word, therefore, there is expected action for what has just been experienced and what has just been said. It's saying this, if you're available and if you are worshipful, and if you're submissive because of my all-encompassing authority, therefore, and here we come in direct contact with the obedience, we have a command in this verse. The command is, make disciples. Therefore, make disciples. You say, what, 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 about, God, what about the word go? Well, that's interesting because the word go is actually used as a participle. And there are three participles in these verses, going, baptizing, and teaching. A participle modifies the main verb. How do you make disciples? By going, by baptizing, by teaching. That's a simple structure here in this command. Going, that's pretty obvious. I mean, how are you going to make disciples of all nations unless you are going? The assumption is they're not coming, they're going. Those three participles describe to us how we should go about making disciples. It's interesting to compare this with Mark chapter 16, verse 15, where Mark records Jesus saying, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. And in Luke chapter 24, where he says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. But Matthew simply says, Make disciples. But that involves going, that involves preaching the gospel, which involves the forgiveness of sins, followed by baptism, followed by the teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's all-encompassing. It starts with going, or literally having gone. The assumption that you're not going to do this until you've gone somewhere where it needs to be done. It might be next door, it might be across the street, it might be downtown, it might be somewhere else in the world. It all starts with going. But I want to focus on that second aspect a little bit, and that is baptizing. Where's the preaching and forgiveness of what Mark and Luke talk about here in Matthew's gospel? Matthew just says, go and baptize. Where does the gospel come in? Well, baptism was simply a public sign, a public confession that a person had already identified himself in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It assumes, then, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the death and resurrection of Christ. All of that has to be understood in order for baptism to be significant. This important ordinance of immersing a person in water, dunking them in the water is a way for a person who has already put their faith in Christ to demonstrate their faith and their union with Christ. Peter, preaching in Acts 2, says, Repent and be baptized. Paul, in writing to Ephesians, says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's talking about water baptism at that point. In the early church, baptism became an inseparable reality from salvation. If a person a follower of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And if a person wasn't willing to be baptized, there was reason to assume that their conversion was probably not genuine. Every believer is to be baptized. It's not an option. You say, well, it's only important that you believe for salvation. Well, that's true. Salvation is a matter of faith. Salvation is not a matter of water baptism. However... Water baptism is a sign of true faith because faith without works is what? James says it's dead. And the very first work that is visible to in the public is that of baptism. Jesus is not interested in a light that is being hidden under a bushel. This little light of mine. Jesus expects us to be bold in our faith. And one of the first steps of boldness is to get up in front of people and get wet. (laughs) Oh, but Pastor, that's so embarrassing. I take a lot of time in the morning getting up and getting my hair done and, and getting dressed and lo- looking nice. I don't want people to see me all wet and bedraggled. Hmm. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and, the, and of the holy angels. We are not to be ashamed when I was a youth pastor, I was encouraging our young people to be baptized. One, one of the guys didn't want to. I asked him why. He said, because then people will expect me to act differently. Isn't that the definition of conversion? To be changed by Christ and act differently? So when Jesus says baptizing them, he means leading them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel so that they identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's all inherent in the word baptizing. It became synonymous with salvation and utterly inseparable. Romans chapter 10.9, I just saw this as I was going through this this week. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Salvation baptism. Isn't that interesting? Unfortunately, today, churches don't emphasize the importance of baptism. If if, If you are not baptized, you need to seriously ask yourself, why? What's holding me back? You know, when Peter preached in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, it wasn't just Peter writing. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. Repent and be baptized. And if we refuse, well, breaking it down very simply, in simple terms, it's called what? Disobedience. And disobedience to God's command is called sin. And I guess we need to ask ourselves, do I want to continue living in sin? Got a pond right out back. (laughs) Actually, we got a baptismal right here. I'd love to plan a baptismal service. If there's any that have not yet been baptized, talk to me. We'd love to have you do that and celebrate with you. Calling people to salvation is the issue, baptism is the identifying mark. I'm not saying that if you're not baptized, you're not a Christian. Don't misunderstand me. But I believe we hinder God's full blessings on us if we continue living in disobedience. The third participle is teaching. In verse 20, making disciples involves teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Making a disciple doesn't end when they believe, nor does it end when they have been baptized. It ends at the end. Jesus has given us a task to continue to teach them to observe all things that he has commanded. We never stop learning. It's a huge part of my responsibility as a pastor, but it's not only for pastors and for missionaries to teach. It's for each one of us because we are all called to make disciples. And teaching is all part and parcel of making disciples, and the learning never ends. It involves instructing them to a lifelong obedience, through grace. That's what Christ is calling us to. A disciple is a learner of Christ and there is always so much more to learn. We are to go to those who do not know. We are to call them to confession with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, an identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. And we are to teach them that in coming to Christ, we are then submitting to a life long obedience to his commands and you know what's so amazing it's all through the grace and mercy of God yes both work together so we start with availability worship submission obedience and making disciples the way the Lord told us to which brings us to our final qualification and that is power power And that is power. Such an enormous responsibility, such an eternal task that we've been given, every one of us has been given, demands something beyond our own resources. And so at the end of verse 20, Jesus gives us this great promise, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And when's the end of the age? It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the power. All authority and power has given to me and I will be with you. That's the power. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will accomplish my great commission. You will make disciples in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the, uh, the earth with the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, folks, has a lot of power. It's a lot of power. What a great truth. God spoke to Zechariah, said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor my power. You notice I put human in there, but by my spirit. That's the power. But my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, that's how it's going to get done. Those are the words, those are the characteristics that lie behind the life of effective disciple-making. Availability, worship, submission, obedience, and the power to do it. When those are all part and parcel of our life, then we will be effective for God. David said to the people in 1 Chronicles 29.5, Who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? And that's the question. Who is willing to consecrate themselves this day to the Lord because He first loved us? We're saying, I'm willing to be submissive to the Lord and do what He wants me to with the power of the Holy Spirit. For God so loved the world that He gave us His one and only Son to save us. Whoever believes in Him will live forever. The power of hell forever defeated. Now it is well. I'm walking in freedom for God so loved. God so loved the world. And he is calling us to take that love out. Father, thank you for the love that you gave to us. Thank you for calling us. You have given us a huge, huge responsibility. And Father, I pray that you would just Fill us with your Holy Spirit and and that we would claim and that we would uh, take hold of the power that you have given to us in boldness to trust you and to step out in faith, knowing that you will give us the wisdom, the words, the knowledge, the discernment as we go out and make disciples and all that that entails. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.